can turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 15. If you're here this morning, you'll recall, hopefully, that that's where we were this morning in the Word of God. We are looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the uh, importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as well as the very content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we noted that we would continue this evening uh, moving through that passage to note more things concerning the way Paul deals with error there in Corinth at the point of the resurrection of the dead. And so I'll begin reading again in 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 1, uh, finishing at verse 22. Once again, the word of the triune God. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Amen. Well, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we rejoice once again in your goodness to us that we could gather uh, together tonight freely to observe the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to rejoice in you, our God, to rejoice in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to rejoice in the gospel of that precious Christ. And we do just pray once again for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in this act of worship, the preaching of your word. We pray for both preacher and hearer, that the Spirit would be active, that the Spirit would attend to the preached word. And Lord God, that your people here would be lifted up uh, upon those high places of gospel truth and Lord God, that sinners would be saved to the glory of your most victorious grace. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, just by way of reminder, the, the occasion in view here in 1 Corinthians 15 is verse 12. And the issue that Paul is dealing with 
is the rejection of the resurrection of the dead. Again, we, we noted this morning that he's in one sense marveling here. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And he goes through a series of, uh, of arguments uh, to press the Corinthians back to the proper and joyful view that there is most certainly a resurrection of the dead, and this is grounded in the very resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And so he starts out with declaring the importance of the gospel. He then moves into the content of the gospel itself, and in the process of delivering the content of the gospel, again, the doing and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God incarnate, In the midst of doing that, he begins to set forth the certainty of the gospel. And that's one of the three things we want to look at then as we move forward tonight. First off, the certainty of the gospel. Secondly, the great hope of the gospel. And then lastly, the Adamic theology of the gospel. For when we get to the end of the portion that we read, we see the Apostle Paul bringing forth the fact that history is in essence, redemptive history is in essence governed by our relationship to two people, Adam the first and Adam the last, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so first off then, the certainty of the gospel. There are three things that the Apostle Paul brings forth here in his writing to press the certainty of the gospel. And the first is that the certainty of the gospel is seen in the testimony of the word of God. So back to the text here, notice at verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So that that clause, according to the scriptures, is very important here. Paul, in wanting to dash away this error that was going on at the church in Corinth regarding the rejection of the resurrection of the dead, Paul, dashing away that, wanting to jettison it out of the minds of the Corinthian, uh, of the Corinthian church, he wants to set forth the fact that the certainty of the gospel and therefore the certainty of the resurrection of the dead resting upon the resurrection of, uh, of the Christ is seen in the fact that the scriptures testify to the certainty of the gospel. In fact, it is that very gospel that is given to us at the outset of Revelation. You know, we, when, we, when we, we noted this morning that creation itself... Creation and providence serve gospel ends. That is, God created and God upholds all things that he creates in order that in due time he could send forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So it's no surprise then with that theological reality in our Christian minds that when we get to the book of Genesis or when we go to the book of Genesis, Not very long after the creation of man and woman, the creation of all things, and then the creation of man and woman, do we find the fall, and then immediately upon the heels of the fall, we find the announcement of the gospel, that the hero born of woman will crush the serpent with his heel. And that is that first gospel promise that's given to us in uh, in divine revelation, and the rest of revelation following that brings us to that one who upon Calvary's cross gives his life for guilty sinners, reversing the curse, reversing the curse of that first Adam and blessing his people immensely and eternally. And so the scriptures from the outset 
argue for and set forth the certainty of the gospel by setting forth the very centrality of divine revelation itself. Again, that hero born of woman, Christ, who will crush the serpent, that is the devil, with his heel. And so the Apostle Paul wants these Corinthians to know that upon the very authority of God himself in the scriptures, we have the truthfulness of the resurrection of the dead. Um, And in fact, we have uh, it, it pointing to this very fact or arguing for this very fact. If you turn with me to uh, the book of Acts in chapter 2, similarly, yet more extensively in the way of preaching language, the, the apostle Peter sets this very thing forth regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ as resting upon the very divine authority that we have in the scriptures, in the declaration of one particular psalm, in fact. In Acts chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 22. So we want to note here that Paul is arguing based upon the authority of the scriptures that Christ died, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures, with emphasis upon the resurrection. So notice in Acts 2 at 22. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified uh, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So we'll just stop there for a moment. This is the Apostle Peter coming to unbelieving Jews and delivering something based upon recent facts uh, that these have, these with wicked hands have just recently, in fact, just 50 days prior to this preaching, had put to death the Lord of glory. That Lord of glory, though God raised up, And now he gets to the point of according to the scriptures. Notice verse 25. For David says concerning him, and then this is a quote of Psalm 16. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption." This is Christ speaking in the Psalms. These are the words of Christ speaking with respect to his own resurrection. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then with regards to the prophetic authority that comes from on high, Through the patriarch David, we read, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So you see the argument that Peter goes on here um, extensively to set forth the truth that the Old Testament scriptures spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that these unbelieving Jews, one of their chief heroes, the patriarch David, being a prophet, 
spoke concerning the resurrection of this Lord of glory that they put to death. The scriptures most certainly set forth the resurrection of this glorious one. And it's a beautiful passage here because it connects the, uh, it connects the, uh, the covenant given to David or the Davidic covenant with the resurrection of Christ. That second Samuel reality here that we have set forth here, or the first Samuel reality that we have set forth here in the passage, uh, he foreseeing this, that is the promise concerning the coming one, that of the loins, from the loins of David, a champion would come, uh, and this champion would ultimately be, uh, would be killed, would be buried, would rise again. That blessed truth is set forth to David And David prophesied concerning it, and in due time, the very thing promised took took place. That very crux of history, that very center of creation and providence took place. So it is according to the scriptures. And Jesus Christ himself brings a measure of this same argumentation post-resurrection. I noted Luke 24 this morning. Remember that post-resurrection account? Jesus Christ himself points the disciples back to the scriptures as an argumentation for the very fact that it was Christ before them speaking to them. Uh, He uses language, he uses language like, uh, um, you know, oh, you have little faith, ought ought not you have, uh, were you not to have understood the scriptures that spoke concerning me? Uh, Did you not listen, in fact, to my very own words when I announced to you that I would be delivered to Jerusalem by wicked hands and that I would be crucified and be, and be raised the third day. And he uses that wonderful language that puts forth the very Christocentrism of our Bibles. The fact that Christ is at the center of the scriptures. He is the sum and substance of divine revelation. He says the prophets and the Psalms, uh, the, uh, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all spoke concerning me. He, he deals with the doubt um, the, remember the disciples for joy were in doubt before the resurrected Christ. And so he deals with their doubt by pointing them back to the scriptures saying that all the scriptures spoke concerning me, that I would be the one who would come forth from God, who would die, uh, who would be buried and who would rise again. And so to destroy doubt, Christ goes to the scriptures. Here the apostle Paul does the same thing. To destroy doubt, to jettison error, to dash away any, uh, any notions that there is no resurrection of the dead, the apostle Paul points them to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again according to the scriptures. And then he does a second thing the apostle Paul does. So the certainty of the gospel is seen in the testimony of the word of God, and it's secondly seen in the fact of eyewitness accounts. Notice the language if you're back in 1 Corinthians 15, after we read the third day according to the scriptures, we see here the fact of eyewitness accounts, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So we have the certainty of the very word of God, and we have the certainty brought by a multitude of eyewitness accounts. One of the blessed things about Christianity, brethren, is that it, it, it doesn't rest upon the private account of, of one individual. Christianity isn't built upon the, 
you know, the so-called meeting of a, of a Middle Eastern man with an angel in the, in the caves of Arabia. It's not, built upon, it's not built upon some teenager, some little whippersnapper who found by himself uh, gold plates buried in the desert of Utah. Christianity doesn't hide anything. There are no secrets. It's not a Gnostic religion. These Corinthians could have sought after Cephas and the Twelve. They could have sought after 500 brethren. Well, not all of them. Some of them have fallen asleep. That is, some have died. But the greater part remain to this day. They could have sought them out. They could have sought out James. They were they could have sought out Paul. In fact, Paul had already spoken to them. Remember the wholesome repetition? Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. The apostle Paul saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And so Christianity is built upon, first off, and again, the foundation of the very word of God, which itself is inerrant, infallible, God-breathed. And it's founded not upon secret things, but upon a multitude of uh, of appearances by the Lord Jesus Christ to many people. In fact, just turn with me briefly to, uh, to the book of Luke for a moment. When we talk about certainty with respect to Christianity, we, we have no shortage of texts. And while well, we have the very fact, of course, that we're dealing with the, the word of God here, again, inerrant, infallible, trustworthy at all its points, we have also in the word of God, these occasions in these places where the authors set forth the very certainty of the things that they are declaring. And we have that in the gospel, according to Luke chapter one, verse one, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. It's wonderful. With Christianity comes certainty. Whatever the word of God discloses concerning the mighty works of God, the mighty works of Christ, the blessings of gospel truth, that it comes with the weight of unerring certainty. You see the language here of Luke, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivering. Again, there's that language of delivering, the transmission of truth. We have Luke having perfect understanding based upon those that he interviewed, and we have the certainty of those things coming by way of an orderly account. The second volume in Luke's two-work work is uh, two book work. You can see in Acts chapter one, the same language, very similar language, Luke writing to the same recipient. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That, that language of Christ presenting himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. What a wonderful thing that we have, again, in Christianity, not something founded in a cave uh, or, uh, or, you know, in the deserts of Utah, but 
the very second of the blessed triune God, having assumed humanity, having died for our sins according to the scriptures, having been buried and having risen again according to the scriptures, appears to many, appears to many and presenting many infallible proofs. Remember what those infallible proofs, at least some of them were. Look at me and see. Handle me and see. I will eat before you broiled fish and honeycomb so that you know that it is I. And so we have the fact of eyewitness accounts strengthening and no doubt girding up the certainty of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, under the certainty of the gospel, if you find your way back to 1 Corinthians 15, the certainty of the gospel is seen in divine grace empowering its proclamation. The certainty of the gospel is seen in divine grace empowering its proclamation. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, this language connecting grace to vanity is very important when we get to verses 12 and following. But back to this point, divine grace empowering gospel proclamation. It was by divine grace that Paul was empowered to proclaim the gospel to all of his audience in this case, pointedly, the Corinthians. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So there is no vanity in the gospel. We have the certainty of the gospel of Jesus Christ founded upon the grace of God given, not for vain preaching, but for preaching full and rich by the power and authority of God. He labored more abundantly than they all, not uh, yet not him, he writes, but the grace of God which was with him. He attributes the proclamation of the gospel not to his own power, not to his own strength, but to the empowering grace of God that strengthens him for the rich proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. And so the grace of God given to the disciples for proclamation is an evidence of the very certainty of the gospel. They preached not of themselves or from themselves, but from the very foundation of divine power. So moving on then from the certainty of the gospel, we want to note then the great hope of the gospel for if there is certainty with the gospel, there is most certainly then hope in the gospel. The great hope of the gospel, we want to note two things. First off, the vanity and despair in rejecting the resurrection of the dead and then secondly, the fullness of joy in and certain expectation of the resurrection of the dead. So notice what Paul does here beginning in verse 12. He, he uses logic. You know, if anybody says that Christianity is devoid of logic, first of all, there can be no logic unless there is a God, the Christian God. And secondly, in the Bible, we have the writers of, uh, of Holy Writ very often mounting logical argumentation. They're using reason. And this is what the Apostle Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 15. He engages in logical if-then statements in order to dash away the, the, the rejection of the resurrection of the dead. So notice 
the vanity and despair in rejecting the resurrection of the dead. We see that if Christ is not risen, uh, well, actually, backing up, if there is no resurrection of the dead, the first logical argumentation is then Christ is not risen. You see, what these people were no doubt believing was that Christ is raised from the dead, but after that, there is no resurrection of the dead. So he is not really the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is simply the only one who has been and will be raised from the dead. No one else will uh, enjoy the resurrection of the dead save for Christ. But his argumentation then is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. You can't have one and reject the other. So his first if-then statement is to argue that the very Christ of your salvation, the very Christ of your hope then, is not risen. And then the logical argumentation continues, if Christ is not risen, then preaching is empty. So why even, why even go to church, Corinthian Christians? Why even be the recipients of preaching? If Christ is not risen, then preaching is empty. Be why? Because preaching had at its core the declaration and proclamation of a Christ raised, of a Son of God incarnate who took our humanity, who died, who was buried, and who rose again for the salvation of his people. So if that is, if that holds primacy of place in Christian proclamation, then if Christ is not risen, that preaching is empty. And the logical argumentation continues. If that's the case, then our faith is empty and futile. Christ isn't risen, then preaching is empty. Therefore, also then our faith, your faith, Corinthian Christians, rejecting the resurrection of the dead is empty and futile. You can see how he's bringing them to sort of a, this, this logical place of despair, in a sense, based upon what they are being stolen away to believe, before he brings back to them again in verse 20, the very hope of the gospel. But we're not quite there yet. Not only is faith empty and futile, but as the text here says, sin then reigns. Verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins. If you reject the resurrection of the dead, you reject then that Christ has been raised, therefore then you reject the fact that you are even saved, that your sins have been atoned for. Hopefully you can see that Paul is bringing them on a little bit of a journey here in order to capture their minds using the word of God and using human reason by which we are in, uh, in God's image created. He's bringing this to bear upon the Corinthians so that they might understand the madness of the, re the rejection of the resurrection of the dead. And so not only then would sin reign, but our brethren, those who have fallen asleep, have perished. The text says here, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, we, we know what that means, fallen asleep. Not literally just falling asleep as if still alive. They are going to, uh, you know, again, draw breath when they awake. Uh, but rather, they've died. It's a nice Christian way of, uh, of speaking of death. Christians, only Christians fall asleep in death. Those outside of Christ die really and truly and enter into an eternity of damnation and hell. But Christians 
fall asleep. That's why Henry, remember, wrote, uh, we noted this morning that he, he wrote that Christ has softened the grave for believers. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen, etc. And then another logical implication then is that those who have fallen asleep have perished and then we are hopeless. Of all men, the most pitiable. Paul finishes the argumentation in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Because yes, in this life we do have hope in Christ, but that, that hope mounts and comes to, to its blessed consummation in the fact that when we die or when Christ comes, we have the blessedness of everlasting life. In the case of those who have died, in the case of those who will die in Christ, there is hope, yes, in life, but there is hope in death. What is our only hope in life and in death? It is the doing and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God, which rising again serves with Christ as being the first fruits of those who will also enjoy the resurrection of the dead. That in due time, those who have died, uh, their bodies will be rejoined with spirit, with soul, and they'll be with the Lord forever. The blessed resurrection. And so the vanity and despair in rejecting the resurrection of the dead is set forth by the Apostle Paul. But then we want to note the fullness of joy in and certain expectation of the resurrection of the dead. And that comes at verse 20. And it comes with another one of those wonderful two words that we have in in scripture but now perhaps you know you remember some of those verses that uh, where we have something set forth by the writer where it's bad news and then we have the good news that follows and it's always linked by sort of a but now statement you know in in ephesians chapter 2 when uh, he talks about uh, us having been dead in our trespasses and sins um, you know, being those who were subject to our own flesh, the devil and the world. But then the grace of God comes in verse four. But God in his, in his mercy and in his kindness and in his grace made us alive in Jesus Christ. Here we have another one of those blessed but now transitions. After the logical argumentation, bringing them to a point of hypothetical despair, we have this wonderful verse now given to us. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Not only that, but he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have died in Christ. This wonderful reversal from despair to hope. The logical implications if there is no resurrection of the dead, but the blessed reality that there is resurrection of the dead, that Christ is the first fruits of those who will rise again because he himself has risen from the dead. And we are to find fullness of joy and that certain expectation that we have as Christian hope. That's one of the things that that differentiates Christian hope from a worldly hope. You know, worldly, we can use the word hope, and we do use the word uh, hope, um, in, in certain contexts where it carries more of the weight of wishful thinking. Um, you know, some who have been, uh, who, who have come from Free Grace Baptist Church, I've spoken about this before, where, you know, I have that sort of wishful thinking hope that one day the Vancouver Canucks will win the Stanley Cup. Um, but, but if we're being real, it'll probably never happen. We've had our hearts broken three times. Um, 
But, you know, we use that language like that. Ah, you know, I really hope that, you know, the Vancouver Canucks will win the Stanley Cup. Or I really hope this. I really hope that. And it, and it just really boils down to wishful thinking because there's no certainty there. But you see, with Christian hope, there is certainty. Uh, Christian hope is the certain expectation that God is true to his promises. We have, when we have Christian hope, there is no error. There is no failure because it's built upon, again, the certain expectation that our triune God is sure to his promises. Whatever God promises, he will bring forth. And God has promised that the Christ would come into this world to live, to die and rise again for his people. And that by virtue of that, those in him will also rise and will live with him eternally. So we have this blessed reversal, if you will, of all of these logical implications. Christ is risen. So therefore, our preaching is full and rich with divine truth. We, we want to observe here that all of these things, because of the resurrection of Christ, are reversed. So our preaching is full and rich with divine truth. Our faith is complete and profitable. Sin no longer reigns, but Christ does in victory over it for us. Our brethren have not perished, but have everlasting life. And we are to be then the most blessed and jubilant in this lower world. We should be. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's very easy for us to just kind of walk around with a scowl and with a, a, a mouth that doesn't crescent up in joy and cheer. But, but as Christians, even in this lower world, beset by sin, beset by the enemies of the gospel, it's okay for us to smile as we rest, and rest upon the fact and as we dwell upon the glory of Jesus Christ that he came into this lower world, taking upon himself our nature yet without sin for our redemption, for our recovery. What a blessed thing. And not only hope in this life that we have the forgiveness of sins and a righteousness not our own that avails with God for us, but that in the life to come, we have blessed hope. Living with Christ eternally, singing the praises of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with all of our band of brothers. We have fullness of joy in and certain expectation of the resurrection of the dead by virtue of Christ's very own resurrection. There's great hope in that. You imagine these people here uh, who perhaps hadn't yet been stolen completely away by this contemporaneous error, who were thinking about those who have died, who are in Christ, that, and, and having this notion taken away, this hope that they have everlasting life now being taken away by these errorists to, to say that they've, they've then just ultimately perished. What a sad thing. You know, it's a, it's a blessed boon to our souls to know that if you've lost someone, if you've lost a family member, if you have lost, a, you know, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, whoever it might be in Christ, a friend in Christ, that there is hope upon hopes knowing that they now behold the face of their Savior. And that in due time, their body will be reunited with soul and they'll live with the Savior forever. But they now enjoy that that, that post-death reality, being found in Christ, gazing upon the face of the King of kings and Lord of lords. What a wonderful thing. There is such hope, not only for ourselves, but as we dwell upon those who we have lost in the Lord. Thirdly and lastly, then, we want to notice the Adamic theology of the gospel. That means 
that there is rich theology going on with respect to Adam and Christ in the gospel, a, a juxtaposition, um, a, we could say a, an antithetical parallel, opposites that, are, uh, that have a certain amount of parallel, Adam thrusting humanity into sin, the second Adam Christ coming doing that which Adam failed to do and bearing the curse that Adam thrust humanity into. And we see that this is brought forth here at verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And verse 22 elaborates upon that, bringing to view not just man, but the men actually in view in verse 21. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now this isn't a universalistic text. He's not saying that Adam thrust all of humanity into sin and death, and now Christ will bring all of humanity into, uh, into everlasting life and bliss. But all those born in Adam die, and all those in Christ shall be made alive. Uh, and so we want to recognize, though, that the gospel has, the scriptures themselves uh, have, the Adam and Christ reality and contrast woven throughout from the beginning. And sometimes it's, it's explicit, as in texts like this. Other places it's implicit, where Adam isn't mentioned, but in view should be recognized. This Adam and Christ uh, contrast. We want to, to note here, as the confession of faith, sa faith says, with regards to the first Adam, for as in Adam all die, our confession of faith reads, the guilt of the sin was imputed, the sin of Adam, and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, the there being Adam and Eve, descending from them by ordinary generation. Being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other min mi uh, miseries, spiritual, temporal and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. So this language of by man came death, and then for as in Adam all die, it holds within it the captured reality of that theology. Sin being imputed, corrupted nature conveyed, uh, um, the, the corruption of uh, the corruption of body and soul, all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, eternal. It captures the severity of the reality of sin. Sin isn't just a small thing. Sin isn't just a light thing. It is grave and it is very heavy. We have transgressed the law of our creator. And we have, that, we have therefore incurred rightly the, the wrath of God both in this life and in that which is to come. By virtue of our connection with Adam, being in Adam, not only do we have this original corruption of nature conveyed, we have sin imputed, and it's from that vantage point that all other transgressions actually do proceed. We sin by virtue of that reality, and rightly we deserve the wrath of God, again, both in this life and that which is to come. But we have the glorious but now. Yes, in, by man came death. Yes, by uh, Adam, death comes. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. And there is this obvious connection 
drawing drawing forth the fact that Christ is the, the second or last Adam, that he is the righteous Adam, he is the glorious Adam, he is the, the, the son of God himself who took upon himself our humanity to come and to save us because it was by man that death came. It needed to be the case that by man eternal life comes, that salvation comes also by man. That's why we noted this morning that the doctrine of the, huma- the true humanity of Jesus Christ is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Because if he did not assume our humanity, then we are not saved. But the second Adam or last Adam comes and in him, all those who are in him will be made alive. Here's some quotes from the history of the church that speak to this reality. The second Adam, Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is Ambrose in the fourth century. In Adam, I fell In Adam, I was cast out of paradise. In Adam, I died. How shall the Lord call me back except he find me in Adam? Guilty as I was in him, so now justified in Christ. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzen, and also in the fourth century, who partake of the same Adam, this is speaking of us, and were led astray by the serpent and slain by sin and are saved by the heavenly Adam, and brought back to the tree of shame, uh, bat, brought back from the tree of shame to the tree of life from whence we had fallen. Cyril of Alexandria in the 5th century, just as the sentence of condemnation for transgression went forth over all mankind through the first Adam, so likewise also the blessing of justification by Christ is extended to all through the one man, the second Adam. And then lastly, Hilary going back to the 4th century, just as we, born of Adam, are in his image and heirs of the curse, so also being born of him, that is Christ, we may be in his likeness and heirs. You see, we ought never to to think that this Adam and Christ contrast and antithetical parallel is just coming forth in spots and in parts of Scripture, but it's woven into the very fabric of the gospel itself. By man came death, By the capital M man, that is Christ, comes the resurrection of the dead. One place we can go before we close, just to see, I notice if you turn to Philippians 2 for a moment, we we just noted that in many places there's explicit reference to this Adam-Christ juxtaposition, and in some places it's implicit, where Adam isn't mentioned but where Adam, this Adam-Christ contrast is most certainly in view. Philippians 2, a passage that no doubt connects well uh, to our passage and that you've heard preached before, Philippians chapter 2. But I just want to read this passage and keep in mind the implicit Adam-Christ reality. Notice in Philippians 2 at verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we might ask ourselves, okay, so where, where's Adam in that? Well, we could sum up this, this hymn and this section as, don't be like Adam, be like Christ. You see, because it was Adam who was in the form of a bondservant and sought, sought by self-exaltation to be in the form of God. But Christ comes, who was in the very form of God, and sought to take on himself the form of a bondservant, that he might redeem those whom Adam thrust into sin and depravity. It's, a very, it's an interesting thing, and I think you've heard this before, and in fact, I might have mentioned it when I preached on this passage, but uh, if I have, here it comes again, um, if I have spoken about it. But in, in view in Philippians, we, we, have, uh, we have Christians who are seeking to perhaps spend too much time on self and not on others. They're seeking a measure of self-exaltation or self-prominence and not, as verses 1 to 4 set forth, not seeking to put others and others' interests ahead of their own. There is to be a, lowly, a lowliness of mind, the Apostle Paul says. And what, what was interesting in Philippi was that there was what's called a Harun or a temple to Philip of Macedon II, the, son, uh, the father of Alexander the Great. So there was this shrine that was set forth by Philip himself because he believed that he should be and that he would be deified, exalted to the position of God. A man exalted to the position of God. It was something called apotheosis in in the Greco-Roman era where rulers, emperors, mighty men were deified by virtue of their earthly exploits. And so we have in view something that perhaps the Apostle Paul is thinking about, the founder of the city's namesake who exalted himself from man to God um, by virtue of his military prowess. That could be in the mind of the Apostle, but what most certainly is in the mind of the Apostle is the the Adam-Christ parallel, the Adam-Christ juxtaposition. John Owen notes, and we'll we'll close uh, with this after observing just, just two quick points, but Focus on this particular language because it brings to the fore the fabric of the Adam-Christ parallel woven throughout the gospel and the point of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, at least a great measure of the point. He descended, Owen writes, that is Christ, as much beneath himself in his self-humiliation as Adam designed to ascend above himself in his pride and self-exaltation. Adam being in the form, that is, the state and condition of a servant, did by robbery attempt to take upon him the form of God or to make himself equal unto him. The Lord Christ being in the form of God, that is his essential form of the same nature with him, accounted it no robbery to be in the state and condition of God, to be equal to him. But being made in the fashion of a man, taking on him our nature, he also submitted unto the form or the state of condition of a servant therein. He had dominion over all. This is Christ. He had dominion over all, owed service and obedience unto none, being in, uh, being in the form of God and equal unto him, the condition which Adam aspired unto. But he condescended unto a state of absolute subjection and service for our recovery, 
This did no more belong unto him on his own account than it belonged unto Adam to be like unto God or equal to him. Wherefore it is said that he humbled himself unto it as Adam would have exalted himself unto a state of dignity which was not his due. So getting back to 1 Corinthians 15, there is much wrapped up in, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But let's leave with this very certain truth. Let's leave with the glorious reality that yes, by virtue of Adam's sin, he thrust all of his progeny, that includes us, into sin and depravity and righteous condemnation. Yet, the second Adam, or last Adam, came, that is Christ, perfected obedience in our stead, bore the curse in our stead, was buried and was raised again, and in that one raised again, we also shall have the resurrection of the dead, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ will also. The blessed truth that in Christ we have salvation from our sins according to the scriptures, and that blessed reality that in the life to come, we will worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. We are to rest in God's promises. We are not to to falter in resting upon his promises like these did. We are to remain steadfast in the promise of God that he will be true to, to, to that blessed promise that in Christ all shall be made alive. And we are to give praise to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the glorious hope found in Christ. We noted this morning, and we, we closed with one of the points, that we are often to reflect upon the work of Christ. There is nothing better to reflect upon. We, we reflect upon the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we reflect upon that blessed one, the second of the Holy Trinity, who took to himself our nature for our recovery, who died, who was buried, and who rose again, that we might sing with all the saints eternally, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to rejoice in your word, that we would, Lord God, sing the praises of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would rejoice in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would sing his praises and rest upon the promises of certain gospel truth. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for that righteousness of Christ imputed to us, received by faith alone. We thank you for all those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And we do pray, Lord God, for for all those here this evening, that those that are yours here, those that are currently in Christ, that you would encourage them, that you would lift them up in the truths of the gospel. And Lord God, any here outside of Christ, we pray now that you would that you would tend to their hearts, that you would impress upon them by your spirit the reality of their sin, the reality of righteous condemnation for their sin, the fact that they do deserve wrath both in this life and in that, and that which is to come. But Lord God, that you would bring them swiftly to the Christ of true and rich salvation, that you would cause them to look with eyes of faith by your grace upon the risen Christ and find all their hope in him. Do go with us into this week. Help us to reflect often upon the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And it's in his name that we pray.